Hi, and welcome to the New Selling of Sales podcast. I'm your host, Marty Holmes. The New Selling of Sales is dedicated to telling positive stories from sales professionals, both in the classroom and in industry. We will chat with a variety of people. Each one of them is going to have an interesting story that I know you're going to want to hear. Our first guest today is Mike Bosworth. Mike has been a thought leader within the field of sales over the last several decades. He's a best-selling author, written Solution Selling, Creating Buyers, co-author of Customer-Centric Selling, and co-author of What Great Salespeople Do, The Science of Selling Through Emotional Connections and the Power of Story. His years of field experience, plus the knowledge he gained working with Neil Rackham on the Xerox Spin Selling Pilot inspired him to found Solution Selling. And he went on from there, and in 2008, he realized that there was something missing in the understanding of why such a small percentage of sellers generated such a large percentage of the revenue. And his interest in research into how this all happened led him to find Mike Bosworth Leadership. So today we have Mike Bosworth on the line. And Mike, thanks so much for being my very first guest. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you, Marty. And you know, if you think about it, if you look at the map, we could hardly be any further apart. <laughs> That's I'm true. Way up north, uh, northwest corner, and you're down in the southeast corner. Right. It just goes to show you the power of technology. It doesn't really matter where you are anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Mike, one of the things I wanted to talk about today um, was how professional sales, when you use that term, it brings visions of uh, used car salesmen and sleazy and slimy practices in most people's minds. So what can we do to change that perception? Well, we do it one sales call at a time, at least, you know, unless we figure out a better way by sending out some videos and things like that. But mm -hmm. if you think about it, I believe the reason is that most human beings, even salespeople, don't like getting calls from other salespeople. <laughs> uh, most human beings, if they're at home at night and the phone rings and somebody says, oh, hey, Marty, you're the winner of one, one of three valuable prizes, you know, a Mustang GT, a trip to Las Vegas. I mean, the, the uh, buyer resistance comes up immediately. And I think, mm -hmm. I think the reason is, is that most 99% of us have come away from multiple times in our lifetime with an encounter with a salesperson where we almost felt like we had to take a shower. We felt pushed into doing something we didn't want, potentially manipulated, hearing phrases like would a morning or an afternoon be better? Mm -hmm. And the problem with a lot of the sales training that's out there today is that it's teaching salespeople to use words and phrases and lines that already have turned off millions of people. You know, if you think about it, if you're a young salesperson, the worst thing you can do 
whether it's a face-to-face -face call or a telephone call with a buyer, is to remind them of another salesperson they had a bad experience with. So one of the things I'm coaching salespeople on is to stop doing the common words and phrases. Would a morning or an afternoon appointment be better? I'm going to be in your neighborhood next Thursday. All, all that, that yeah. stuff that millions of salespeople have tried and is turning buyers off. And in order for us to change this, we have to teach salespeople to emotionally connect and build trust with strangers very quickly. Mm -hmm. And the best way I have learned to do that is using stories, very short 60 second stories that trigger a buyer's pure curiosity. Because if you're selling B2B, in the business world, most professionals, whether you're in accounting or finance or production or engineering or marketing or in the IT department, most professionals in the business world are very curious about what their peers are doing. Yes, yes. And so we're teaching salespeople, because even if you have the best 60-second story in the world, you can't just call a stranger and start telling a story and expect them to listen to that story. So one of, the, one of the key things we have to teach salespeople is to get permission to tell the story. So if I, if I called you on the phone and you were a CIO and I knew I had a great CIO story and I said, Marty, you know, this is Mike Bosworth with the ABC networking company. And you and I haven't spoken before, but I know you're the CIO at your company. And I'd like your permission to tell you a short story about another CIO we've worked with. Human curiosity. Pure curiosity, mm -hmm. right. So in 10 seconds, you can trigger the pure curiosity. Now, if the, if the person, 99% of them say, sure, go ahead because they do have pure curiosity. Now we design the story where after 60 seconds, this person who had pure curiosity now realizes, God, this, this guy sounds really young on the phone, but it sounds like he understands how hard my job is. Mm -hmm. and, he, and it sounds like she has helped somebody just like me solve a problem I haven't really gotten my arms around yet. Yeah, so you've got so that. So at the end of my 60 second story, I say, but Marty, enough about me. What's going on with you? Now you're gonna do one of two things. You're um, either gonna fold your arms and you know, you can feel somebody fold their arms even over the phone, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, absolutely. So if the story didn't work, you're gonna go, well, what do you wanna know? Uh-huh. But most of the time, if the story is well engineered and written conversationally, and the seller has rehearsed that story a few times on, on their peers. In other words, I don't think salespeople should be practicing on buyers. They should be practicing with each other and with mm -hmm. their, you know, 
Yeah, there is some of that in role playing. Yeah, but. right. That's why it's got to be role play. Selling is a skill. It's not an academic subject. <laughs> you know, just like driving a stick shift car, you can't learn that from the video. That's true. You know, as a matter of fact, you mentioned I learned how to drive stick shift in an old MGB on a hill because the person teaching me said, you're going to have to use this clutch a lot and you might as well learn now. Yeah, <laughs> it was a little scary, but I never forgot that original story. <laughs> yeah, and and it's something that once you can do it, it's like riding a bike. Once you can right. do it, you can do it. Once you can drive stick, you can drive stick. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can't learn it from a video or a lecture. And that's the real difference between sales and marketing. Marketing is an academic subject. Mm -hmm. Sales is sales is a skill it's not an academic subject but um now we're we're being a little uh counterproductive here because we know that there are a lot of universities out there uh teaching professional sales and they're right. doing it they're doing it through sales competitions through role plays um so they're they're doing it the right way i believe for the most part um but what what do you suggest they could do to enhance that competition and role play and carry it more into what you're talking about learning to you know tell a story and make a connection what can they do well it's interesting because one of the big topics i uh, consult with my clients on is integrating their marketing department with their sales department and we had a big client, multi-billion dollar networking company, and we did a sales kickoff for them. And uh, they had 11 really well-written, well-researched customer success case studies on their website, right? Right. 11 of them. And I asked for a show of hands in the sales audience. I said, how many of you are using those case studies? No hands went up. Ah, yeah. Because they were written to be read. They had proper grammar and commas and the, the I's dotted and the T's crossed, but they were so long and full of detail, you know, it would have taken you if you went on their website, it would have taken you three to five minutes just to read the dang things. Yeah. And salespeople are eyeball to eyeball, or, you know, whether it's on Zoom or whether it's face to face. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we started doing with our clients is we had salespeople and marketing people do makeovers on those stories and make them what we call sales ready. And sales ready means conversationally ready. And we have found that the key to teaching salespeople is the story has to be 60 seconds. It has to be a peer story. So you don't even tell it until you've triggered the peer curiosity. Can I share a story with you about another CIO? Mm -hmm. And then you say yes. And then, of course, this is role played. Right. Well, this 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 CIO we're talking about started off her career, and we have the green setting part of the story. And writing the three bullets of that story 
in the salesperson's own handwriting mm -hmm. so they can look at the person and tell a conversational sales ready story not a marketing case study that's on the website not this yeah i got right. you and then they go to the uh the complication the struggle the person is having in their story and then they go to the turning point the vision the aha moment and then they go to the business result. And at the end of 60 seconds, enough about me, Marty, what's going on with you? Most of the time, that story, if it's written well and told well, the buyer starts talking freely. Mm -hmm. And now the peer curiosity became peer envy. Because now that story showed them that not only does this young salesperson understand how hard their job is, but this young salesperson has also helped their peer solve a problem they haven't solved yet. Ah, so yes. Now, so what that story did was remove the discovery resistance the buyer had. And we all have discovery resistance mm -hmm. against salespeople. So I guess it's there's, only, there's really only two professions that I have found that consistently show discovery resistance. It's not even two professions, it's two groups of people. One is buyers, but my wife is a couples therapist. And when couples come to her, it's usually female-led, the female's dragging the reluctant male <laughs> partner, you know, to the meeting. Right. And, those males, they don't want to talk about any feelings or any family of origin stuff or any bad behavior or anything. They have discovery resistance too. Yeah. Don't you think that's kind of a learned thing though? Uh, males it are kind of taught, they're taught to be strong and tough and, and you don't oh, want yeah. to just show yourself. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we all have discovery resistance against salespeople. If you went to a doctor for the first time, the odds are, as a patient, that doctor could start off asking diagnostic questions almost immediately and you'd be fine. You don't have any discovery resistance for a doctor. You don't, if you went to a tax accountant for a consultation, you don't have any discovery resistance there. But boy, if that person has salesperson on their business card, you've got discovery resistance until they connect emotionally and build some trust with you. And that's why we teach salespeople to tell those peer stories, those customer hero stories. And the customer hero stories are like magic, the way they eliminate the discovery resistance. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting. You know, when you're talking about the doctor and the, the tax attorney and it, I mean, you're absolutely right. You, you go into that appointment or that meeting with a preconceived notion yeah. that this, this person's here to help me. Yeah. Whereas when you're talking to someone you don't know who is trying to sell you something, you're perceived. <laughs> yeah, your idea is this person is trying to do something and I don't want to do it. This person might be trying to take advantage of me because I have been taken advantage of so many times in, in my personal past. history by salespeople. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, you really hit the nail on the head right there. That was kind of one of those aha moments that you were talking about yeah 
Um, So, you know, it's so important in today's world for a lot of young people to have an emotional connection to what they're doing. So what we need to do is, is get students to recognize that sales is all about making those connections those emotional connections with your customer. Uh, I think if we could emphasize that, we would have uh, more uh, college students, business students maybe, uh, interested in checking out professional sales. Absolutely. And, you know, another subtle key of these stories is to answer the question, who is the hero of the story? People love stories, but stories have to have some emotion in them. They have, there has to be a, 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 um, a story arc, if you will. Oh, yes. And stories need heroes. So, uh, for instance, I used to compete when I was a sales rep for Xerox. We competed with IBM all the time. And those old IBM salespeople were so good at telling their company story. But I realized years later, the reason was they always had a hero. Our IBM was founded by Thomas Watson, and they gave some background on him. And then when Thomas Watson retired, this guy took over, and he had a different vision, and he took us here. And then when that person got promoted or retired, this person took over. Most uh, professional salespeople in industry, when they tell their company's story, it doesn't go so well because they use the pronoun we. We were founded in 1982 and we've had strong, steady, controlled growth, but there is no emotional connection to a we. There's only an emotional connection to a human. Oh, yeah. So the company stories have to be about human beings. Mm-hmm. And then we teach sales. There's three stories we teach salespeople. There's okay. company story, customer hero stories about uh, other CIOs or other directors of engineering who are, have already solved problems. And then their personal story of why they do what they do. And most bicycles are started off with the customer hero story, the peer curiosity story that Mm -hmm. ideally turns peer curiosity into peer envy and removes the discovery resistance, right? But but if you get a buyer into a a long, you know, B2B bicycle, it might be two, three months, Uh we find that now you're in the middle of the cell cycle. Maybe you're out helping them calculate the ROI. Maybe you're out helping them figure out the transition plan or the training Mm -hmm. plan, you know, because when you're selling productivity, improving systems to the enterprise, they're complicated. Sure. And we find that in those calls, maybe now you went out for an ROI meeting and then you decide to grab lunch with your prospect. So many times the prospect will say, well, Marty, how'd you get into sales? What's your story? Now they're curious about their Mm -hmm. salesperson. So that's when they tell their personal uh, who I am story and why I do what I do. But that has to be rehearsed too. Now that doesn't have to be 60 seconds mm-hmm. like, the, like right. the initial prospecting story. Once they know you, the more they know you and trust you, the longer your stories can get. Ah, yeah. It's all and about in the very beginning, we only have 10 seconds to trigger 
pure curiosity. And then we have 60 seconds to convert the pure curiosity into pure envy. That's the most critical part. But the third story, your company story, most enterprise buyers, they go through this buy cycle and, and the senior executives are typically there in the beginning and then they delegate the middle, all the details, mm -hmm. the calculating the ROI and the transition plans. But then at the end, when they wanna negotiate price, the senior executives are in there again and they're thinking about risk. The senior executives think about risk. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, they're asking us for a, a million and a half dollars for this system. What if we do? What if we don't? You know, and that's where your company story, because now they want to know, does this organization keep their promises? Are they trustworthy? Yeah. So those are the three key stories we, we teach salespeople. Fascinating. But, what we really want to do is help these marketing departments do a better job of helping sales. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, and I'm sure your, uh, your sales professors have heard this forever, but most vice presidents of marketing think we're handing sales all these hot leads and they fall into a black hole. Right, right. But the VP of sales says, those hot leads from marketing are from low-level people who have no authority, no clout, no training authority. So yeah, there are two silos fighting mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there and, is a lot of talk about marketing and sales need to work together. Uh, some organizations seem to be doing a better job, but others are, are really struggling. I've, I'm working on a white paper on that that's almost finished. And so if any of your uh, uh, prof college professors would like that, just give me a notice on LinkedIn and I'll send it to them. But Absolutely. I'll make it real simple. To solve that problem, it's amazingly easy. You get I get the VP of sales and the VP of marketing in the same room, just the three of us for a one hour meeting. One hour. And at the end of that one hour meeting, I get the two of them to agree on the definition of a qualified lead. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but I bet that's a challenge. Simple. But here's the definition. A, no, a targeted buyer persona, you know, like we sell the CIOs and engineering managers and manufacturing, whatever, you know, the personas of the people we sell to. Uh -huh. So a, a targeted buyer persona by name is curious how we help him or his or her peer achieve a goal or solve a problem. Mm -hmm. So now if we can get the inside sales department prospecting with these customer hero stories now when they get a live one they hand it off to sales mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sales loves those leads isn't it wow. interesting it's just about getting people to to talk to each other and coming up with a common uh statement a common problem a column common story uh, it sounds so simple but uh i know it's not <laughs> well silos are the bane of 
big government and big companies. Oh boy, yeah. Right, I mean, you know, September 11th happened because the FBI was hoarding information and the CIA was hoarding information and the NSA were hoarding information. All these silos weren't talking to each other and in most companies, the silo of marketing and the silo of sales aren't working together. Yeah, boy, you just, you just, uh, you just solved a big problem. <laughs> now well, what it, we need to do is not solved until I get those two people in a room and they agree to the definition of a qualified lead. Now you can sell them my definition because it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it, Mike. Hey, listen, um, as we were uh, talking earlier. Uh, you had a, an offer that you wanted to share um, about speaking to uh, students, sales students, uh, speaking to professors' classes. Um, yeah. would, you, would you like to expand upon that for just sure. a moment? I love to do that. And I gave you a list of some of the schools I've already spoken to. Mm -hmm. But uh, Zoom makes it really easy. I can stay right here on Orcas Island and I can Zoom in and... Um, well, you know, you're probably going to have John Kratz on your podcast. Oh, yes. Days. He's oh, a yes. professor at the University of Minnesota, and he had me come in on a regular basis to teach it, to talk to his sales class. And what I like to talk about these young people, it really seems I grew up poor, right? So when I went to Cal Poly Pomona, I majored in marketing because they had no sales major. Right. But, but most of the people I was majoring in marketing with also came up poor. And the main reason we were ma majoring in marketing is so we could get a good job when we graduated mm -hmm. and start making some money. Right. Makes sense. Right. Right. And, you know, at the University of Minnesota in, uh, in Duluth, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of silver spooners at that school. I'm Silver sure not. Meeting, you know, where daddy and they were raised with a lot of money. So these, these kids, they're majoring in business and sales and marketing because they want to start making some money when they graduate. Sure. And I asked these classes, I said, how many of you want to make some serious money while you're still in your 20s? And they and all I'm, hands raised up. Right. They got debt, you know, and, and I say, if you think about it, very few people make good money in their 20s. If you, if you go to law school, you're not going to make any money until your mid-30s. Right. If you go to medical school, you're not going to make any good money until mm -hmm. your mid-30s. But if you can get a job selling B2B enterprise systems and services that go for multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can make serious money in your 20s. And all their ears are like, and all ears go, tell up us more, tell us more. Tell us more. <laughs> and so uh, I'm, I'd love to talk to any of these classes about how you get a job. Because the other thing I like to coach people on is how to go get your dream job. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if I can teach a salesperson how to call CIOs, to sell some new system, I can teach them how to co-call a VP of sales and get a job interview. Beautiful. Right? That's and a real then on that job interview, we teach them how to tell their personal story of character. Remember the second story, the who am I story? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Well, that's the story that gets you a job because when you graduate from, from college, you don't have any professional experience yet. You might have, you know, had some labs, you might have had an internship or something. Mm -hmm. But when when people are hiring young people, they're 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 more concerned about their character than their competence. Right. Right. Because right. you, you can said, build well, if you hire somebody who worked for Oracle for 10 years, you're looking, you're looking to hire competence. You're looking to hire somebody who already knows how to go out and do it, and you throw them out there and say, go do it. Right. When you're hiring kids out of college, you're hiring them for their character, for their ability to get up when they fall down, their ability to learn from painful lessons, their ability to keep their promises, their ability to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And so we teach, we teach young people how to cold call and get an interview with the senior executive. Mm -hmm. And then on the interview, What's the, what's the interviewer always say to the young person? So tell me about yourself. Right. So we have that story nailed. And at the end of that story, maybe two minutes, which has a lot of the struggle. In other words, we, we engineer the story to show the senior executive that this person has character. Mm -hmm. And then we teach them to say, but enough about me, Marty. I'd love to hear your story about how you got to be the VP of sales here at this company. Mm -hmm. And we teach them to tend that story for the next half an hour because all these senior executives love to tell their own story to mm -hmm. a young person. Right. And at the end of that, they, they end up getting job interviews because they were able to succinctly tell their story of character and then show the senior executive that they could tend their story and recap it back to them. Ah, uh, that's that's a, that's a beautiful Magic. skill. Beautiful skill. Yes, absolutely. But it has to be rehearsed. It has to be role played. This isn't something you learn from a video or from a book. Right. You have so to be So I love role play labs. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm very open to uh, giving some of your uh, business professors examples for role play labs that really work. Yeah, I, I'm sure they'd be more than happy to listen and and uh, and to hear your story, Mike. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, this has been great. Um, what a wonderful first guest you've been. Uh, I truly, truly appreciate it. And uh, I know that individuals uh, going to be really interested in hearing your story and what you have to say. And again, we're going to make sure that our Professor colleagues that we know all over the country uh, and even all over the world um, know that you are interested in speaking to their students. Um, yeah. It is Mike Bosworth giving back to the profession, which uh, we hope more and more people will do. Uh, we promote that on a continual basis. And Mike, I just, I just can't tell you. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been a learning experience for me. And uh, before I go today, I want to thank you for putting the idea of uh, SEF hosting a podcast and for um, myself serving as host uh, into this little, this little brain up here. And uh, I'm so happy that I acted upon it. And I just, I thank you so much. Well, I, I really think you can uh, elevate the SEF mission substantially 
by sharing ideas and speakers and things like that with your podcast. So uh, it's been my honor to join you on your maiden voyage. Huh. Thank you, Mike. All Take right. care and we'll talk again soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Marty.